In the Thick of It, a Profit and Loss podcast with Colin Lambert and Galen Stobbs. Hello and welcome to In the Thick of It, Profit and Loss's weekly podcast with myself, Colin Lambert, and with me as always in New York is Galen Stops, editor of P&L. And, well, Galen, this is actually the 50th In the Thick of It we've done since we started um, around this time last year. 50 up, which is very appropriate given the Cricket World Cup started last night in London. So, pause for tumbleweed from our American listeners. And I suppose it's probably appropriate to start with some feedback. So um, this also comes in the form of a reminder to everyone listening that you can now um, subscribe and download us from the uh, iTunes store. Um, Indeed, some of the feedback I got last week was, I can't believe Apple let you on their iTunes store, which (laughs) I thought was quite harsh. Um, More feedback was, it's not quite Kermode and Mayo. Thank you for that, which is, for those who don't know, it's a BBC film review. So my best film of last year was First Man. The story in the alarm song, although I found it a little bit depressing because I didn't know about the death of his daughter at an early age. What was yours? Uh, well, it wasn't uh, produced last year, but I only saw it last year. But I watched a great documentary called Shadow Man, which is about a oh. New York artist called Richard Hamilton, who basically was really talented, but kind of managed a way to, a way to, uh, to put it politely, screw up things uh, throughout his yeah. interesting say, career. Uh, very artistic. Yeah, I said, I knew you'd go all arty on me. Anyway, that's your film <laughs> reviews out of the way for, for that listener that wanted Kermode and Mayo. And we'll be back next week with the top TV programs of 2019. <laughs> on a more serious feedback, um, last week's chat we had around sort of, you know, the ECNs becoming not so much better citizens, but maybe being a little bit more transparent around, you know, being more transparent around data. A couple of people got in touch with me and sort of said, I think one of them in particular was interesting. He said, like, well, as, you know, as much as we do want to sort of look at how LPs are behaving on these platforms, we need we should probably look at publishing buy-side statistics. So, you know, their hit ratios, um, reject stats, and look at that in the context of each LP. So it... Uh, and I actually, I, I totally, I totally accept that. I mean, it's we do tend to focus a bit on LP behaviour because generally LPs, you think sell side, um, they're the ones generally on the defensive. So therefore, they're the ones that are likely to um, sort of make, you know, be more innovative in protecting themselves. Part of which led to some of the problems before. You know, the global code came out because of the sell side issue. We've done this to death. But yeah, it wouldn't be a bad idea to sort of make it more symmetrical and, and maybe show the takers where they could change their behaviour. You got any? You okay with that? Well, firstly, firstly, I think uh, calling it innovative ways of defending themselves is a wonderful euphemism, Colin. Yes. <laughs> I, I was treading delicately there, which is unusual for me, I have to say. That is, that is, straight, <laughs> off, that is straight off a PR release. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I've been reading too many of them this week. Probably uh, have. Great. You never I, know these things. I, I it's not, I'm not last looking at you. It's, it was just a new innovative way of defending myself. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, you know how much I enjoy Last Look, so yes, <clears throat> that was my, um, the, I think I might use that one in the future if I could even remember it. Um, um, moving so on. I think just I, I, I think, I think to say that, I mean, I guess they're right. If, if you did want to go down that route of, of publishing LPs, it would make sense to do buy side as well. What I would say is I'm, I'm skeptical that we'd get there anytime soon on LPs, and I'm many magnitude times more skeptical that uh, any brave platform is going to start pushing to publish buy-side statistics like that. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, you're probably right. I mean, but then again, if we are looking at this ideal world where we have more transparency in what people, how people are behaving, we should look at buy side behaviour. The only problem is, of course, as is pointed out all the time, and is obviously a fact. But the buy side is a very diverse um, school indeed, yeah. and it's going to be difficult to really discern anything around. You know, you'd have to break it down into, you know, buy side type. So, you know, what are asset managers? You know, real money managers rejections because, or you know, um, uh, you know hit rates because they'll be vastly different in many ways to like your more active hedge fund who's looking to squeeze a pip here and there, and again, possibly different to your corporate or regional bank. So. Yeah, I mean, I think I like the idea. I think if you if we are going to be more transparent, we should push for more transparency on everything across you know, both areas um, of you know, sell and buy side. But uh, yeah, I kind of tend to uh, agree with you. I don't think there's a platform out there that would do it um, unless they're forced to, and I can't see how they'd be forced to. So anyway, um, a couple of things. <clears throat> I wanted to go a slightly different route to kick off the main body this week. Real economics. Now, obviously, this is <laughs> the audience holds their breath as you and I step into the world of economics, which is always going to be fun. Um, firstly, um, I mean, you know, maybe you can give some insight here. I don't think you can. I don't think anyone can. But so the U.S. Treasury put out their um, report this week on currency manipulators, and um, a friend got in touch just around the same time as I was looking down the list, and I think our reaction was both the same. It was like. So Ireland, yes, that's Ireland, just off the UK, is a currency manipulator. How does that work? I mean, we had this last year when the US named Germany a currency manipulator, and I was pretty right. sceptical about that. Because, <laughs> you know, it's called why, why, the euro. They have their own currency? Yeah. I mean, but at least in, in the case of Germany, you can look at it and go, well, Germany is the biggest economy in the Eurozone. And, you know, therefore, you know, it's the way its economic policies could do, you know, maybe playing a role. I mean, I don't know the exact number, but I'm sure when the euro was formed from the EQ, look it up, kids. It's a good one. Um, <laughs> when the euro was formed from the EQ, Ireland was a, less than 1% of the euro. Of the euro. So that kind of reflects Ireland's influence on the euro is about 1%. And apparently now the US thinks they're a currency manipulator. I mean, is there anyone there with it? You know, is everyone there totally detached from reality? It's just bizarre. Your silence speaks I, volumes. I, I'm, I'm not going to try and, and, and fathom this administration. Um, no, well, I mean, to be fair, I'm not even sure it's the administration, it's the US Treasury. Um, although they're probably um, adhering to rules given by the administration. And I suppose given you're still under house arrest, then you, you've got to be a bit careful what you say. Which makes the next yeah. question I've got for you even trickier. So this week, Trump um, threatened Mexico with more tariffs. Yeah, so... Which so, is very timely. Unfortunately, I... Um I won't be at our Mexico conference next week because, as you said, still under house arrest. Um, but I would, I would very much love to be a fly on the wall for that event to um, to watch, particularly our opening two panels where we have the the Central Bank of Mexico talking about um, you know, giving a presentation on the challenges and opportunities in our financial markets. There, I can imagine what some of the challenges are going to be. Um, what do? 
Sorry, I managed to mute myself for a second there. Um, well, it'll be interesting because I remember a couple of years ago when the central bank gave um, gave uh, an introduction, and it was the first time I'd ever seen a central bank show me a graph of their nation's currency mapped against uh, tweets. So they had they had kind of chronological tweets from Trump, and you could see kind of the direct impact it had on the Mexican peso, which was um, yeah a, a new one for me. So I'd love to be there. For that. Be I wonder if that's still the case. Do you think that's still the case? Because obviously the market tends to ignore his tweets a lot more now because A, it's you know, not, not a lot new, and B, it's been proven that to be a little bit um, blather rather than substance. Yeah. Um, I suspect I suspect the, the impact or the correlation isn't as big as it was uh, yeah. when this was still kind of something of a new phenomenon. But I wouldn't be surprised. Well done getting the word correlation in there, by the way. Thank you. That um, sounds like a real world economist. Talking about, I know exactly what I'm talking about, Colin. This is why we don't have me moderating the panels, but even when I am. Um, and then we have we have a series of economists talking about kind of trade wars, geopolitics, etc. Um, you know, we've got CIOs and economists talking about that. So I would, I'm bitterly disappointed I can't be there to to hear that because. Yeah. Um, I mean, to be fair, though, knowing knowing the way that the news cycle goes these days, I'm sure we'll have gone through several cycles of uh, Trump threatening Mexico, saying that they're actually best friends. The new trade agreement's about to be signed, and then back to threatening all in the all between now and Tuesday when the event's happening. <laughs> I mean, it, it is actually it's one of those things. I mean, you know, I, I don't mean this in a nasty way to to any of our panelists because they're all really good to give up their time and to give us their opinions. But there is always an extra sort of little frisson around the panel when you know you know the panelists are going to have to go to a difficult area. Um, yeah, and I mean, it's yeah, it, it's always interesting, especially when you can tell that. The, the the panelists are always incredibly professional, but yep. what one can't but but they know what the temperature in the room is, right? Being the the administration. <laughs> yeah. Could be a fun one. <clears throat> so yeah, get yourself there if you can, unless like Galen you run the house arrest. Um moving on, you um flicked me over a report from Greenwich. Yes. which has some interesting stats in it. Um, I've scanned through it, but run the listeners through your questions. Yeah, so, I mean, it, so it, it looks at uh, the potential 360T FXL uh, kind of merger yep. that could happen if, if Deutsche Börse does buy the platform, which you and I have, have discussed before. Um, and most of most of what it says is that will be fairly familiar to people who are kind of in the FX market, you know, day to day. Um, one thing that I was a little um, confused about was was when they talk about the size of the kind of the multi-dealer uh, channel, the amount of volume going through there. Because according to their surveys, 40% of FX trading globally uh, is now executed on multi-dealer platforms. Um, that seemed a little high to me because when you consider that uh you know even taking the old the now slightly stale bis figure of 5.1 trillion right that mm. that's how much fx is going through you know when you combine you know all the multi-dealer platforms that report volumes publicly you get you're in the billions not the trillions then yeah. 
let, let you know, let's say mm-hmm. hypothetically, you know, you add, you take a stab at getting some of the others, and you add all those in there. I still don't think you're getting into you know the the two point five two point six trillion territory mm-hmm. or, or anywhere near it. So I'm slightly uh, unsure about how representative that figure is. Yeah, I mean, I think it comes from their own surveys, which are, are pretty extensive, but <clears throat> it's not a you know a, a universal sample, is it? The way the BIS and um, you know, the regional FX committee surveys are. <clears throat> My yeah, first thing is, are we still talking about 360 I'm... FX all? What about matching? It's what just, about it? It's, it was another one. I mean, I, I, it's nonsensical to me why 360 would want to buy just FX all and leave the global the global ECM that they really want on the table. But um, we've done that to death. With the, the these numbers, I mean, I tend to agree with you because. I had a quick look before we came on the call at the um, numbers for London and New York in October in the last survey released, and uh, multi-dealer platforms and ECNs was about 38% of London volume. This is across all products, and 32% of New York. Now, they're likely to be the highest ratios, I would suggest. Um, in, in well, They'll be the highest... Um, contribution to the volume count, which would make up the percentage, I would, I would argue. Um, now, the Greenwich numbers actually uh, don't, in, you know, the ECNs are separated out, so they're saying 40% just on the multi-dealer platforms. Yeah. I mean, if you look at, I mean, Refinitiv is the biggest multi-dealer platform. Um, it does something originally like 450 yards a day. Um, so even, t- even taking into account, you know, there's a massive amount of that is in, sh- is in short date swaps. Um, but that's still, still a volume, of course. Um, you know, if that's the biggest, and that's probably around like 9% of total volume through that platform, um, yeah. I can't see where the rest of it, where the rest of it comes from. Um, the only thing is if they're including maybe aggregation, so private aggregation, that could yeah. technically, I guess, be a, a multi-dealer platform in its own way. If I'm a customer and I've built my own aggregator and I've got you know 10 LPs streaming to it, that's a multi-dealer platform, isn't it, um, in some ways? But, yeah, I, 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 if it is 40%, then it kind of justifies some of the money people are paying for these platforms. But, yeah, I, I mean, unless there's something strange happening in swaps that we don't know about, um, you know, I mean, obviously, CurrentX FX Connect combined is a fairly lumpy um, uh, volume, the average daily volume. But I still can't see how we get to there. Um, yeah, I, I suspect I suspect it's where they. I suspect it's the sample size. Maybe Greenwich has got an an outlier there in terms of uh, they talk to. I know they talk to a lot of asset managers and corporates. These guys do just use. You know, multi-dealer platforms. Maybe if they had more regional banks or you know um, hedge funds who are using ECNs and and private aggregation, maybe it might be a little bit different. Yeah, it could be. Um, on the on the merge thing, one thing that that someone with with kind of no skin in this game, uh, to be clear, kind of mused to me this week was was whether a potential FX or 360T merger could actually run into anti antitrust issues. In terms of 
you know, their argument was that they would have so much of that kind of market tied up, would it be anti-competitive? Um, I would suggest probably not, because I don't think 360T is big enough. Um, if you look at 360T, it does about 75 billion euros a month, a day, sorry. Um, but the vast amount of that is, again, is in short date swaps. So if you're looking at a combined 600 yards between the two of them, and there's bound to be some crossover in, in terms of some clients, I get the I get the, the benefits of such a deal. We've discussed it before. There's regional strengths, but there are going to be crossover clients. So, you know, 600 is probably very generous. Even that is only about 12% of volume. Um, is that enough to trigger antitrust? I mean, you could argue that if Reuters had a couple of good months, sorry, Refinitiv, falling into the old trap, if Refinitiv had a couple of good months, then they would they would be at the same level. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, if, I suppose if you've got some zealous, you know, regulator with the political ambitions who can see an opportunity in doing it, maybe you might get an investigation. But um, I honestly, I don't, you know, Deutsche Bors is a huge company. 360T isn't in 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 you know in the big scheme of things in terms of FX. So yeah, I'd be a little bit doubtful on that one. One to watch, I have to say. But I would have thought CME EBS, although lower volume would have been maybe a bigger issue for them um, in lower FX volume because of the um, you know, the fact that CME would have you know, clearinghouse trade in Triana, Trioptima, and everybody else. Interesting that you say that, uh, that it relatively 360T isn't that big. It's described in this paper as, uh, a, I'm quoting it, a juggernaut. Hmm. 75 yards a day, <laughs> I don't think, makes you a juggernaut. I mean, you know, with all due respect to everybody involved, I mean, 360T has grown really well um, and it's got to a good position, again, mainly thanks to its like, you know, core client base, I think. Um, and, it, and again, to reiterate, you know, they bought um, GTX because they wanted credibility in spot. Um, GTX was doing, you know, 10 to 13 yards a day. And I think it's given them some instant credibility in spot, but 10 to 13 yards a day is not a juggernaut in spot terms. And if you look at it in those terms, you know, I mean, probably I don't, I don't think doing a lot of short date swaps makes you a juggernaut either. So I think there's a little bit of artistic license in that. <clears throat> but I would argue that, I mean, I would totally accept the Deutsche Bors, the power behind it is a juggernaut. And, you know, if they did get refinitive, then this would be a juggernaut. Because that would be, easy. I mean, you know, it's the biggest platform already, Refinitiv. So um, this would just increase that further. <clears throat> and so, I mean, while we're on the uh, subject of platforms, you and I talked uh, fairly recently about some of the um, the personnel changes that were happening at uh, EBS, Next. Yeah. The me that the platform formerly known as Next Market <laughs> yes. um, and DBS <laughs> again, yeah, yeah. Um, so we've had they've announced today um, they've got a, a bunch of appointments. There's a lot of people who are, are remaining there while in transition roles. 
but there seems to be kind of a new layer of management coming through. Any thoughts on on that? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm actually quite pleased with what they've done. And I'm sure that's really important to the management of CME that I'm pleased. Um, <laughs> but I could, because what they've done, they've basically gone um, internal, which I think is you know is, is quite important. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm losing losing my voice. It's only Friday morning. What's going on? Um, in terms of you know, like Guy Rowcliffe is come, I think, come to ICAP stroke EBS via Reset. So he is properly in the um, in that sort of mould. He he knows the business inside out. The broker tech hire is was that John Edwards? Um, uh, yeah, John Edwards. Yeah. In my defence, this is morning in Sydney, so I've only just seen. I've, only, I've really only had a ten minutes on the news. But yeah. Thank so you. John Edwards obviously was was obviously um, broker tech uh, before. You know, he took over as he was. I think he was running the EMEA. So that's a you know another internal appointment. Someone knows the business well, and frankly, Jeff Ward's DNA is pretty much EBS. I mean, he's been ICAP EBS for probably coming up to fourteen, fifteen years, I would say. Um, Jeff also knows the business inside out because he's run sales in the US. He's been based in London for a while. He's been based in Asia. He's headed up the NDF business, which has gone really well. And you know, I think Jeff knows the business because if you remember when we spoke about this a few weeks ago. I was a little bit concerned that what they were doing was, you know, CME was not used to running an OTC platform. And yeah. from uh, at the face of it, they were getting rid of the people that would be there to run it for them. Um, what they've done effectively, they've just brought in a new generation of management, moved the generation of management one up. Um, so, yeah, to me, I think it's positive, um, you know, particularly for EBS. Jeff Ward's a good guy. He knows his way around the market. He knows a lot of people there. He's got a lot of respect out there. Um, so, yeah. Um, and I think maybe what CME's looking for, because Jeff's more of a business development guy than product, um, okay. in terms of the way he's gone through things. You know, he's, he's, he's built businesses and so on. And maybe CME are going, okay, what we want is someone running it who's going to have more of a commercial focus. And that could and that could be another reason behind it. So, yeah, to me, all positive. I don't see anything wrong with it. So, uh, it's quite heartening that they've actually stayed with people with that, you know, with say with the company DNA. So, good luck to them. Um, I wanted to leave some time for us to discuss um, to follow up from something last week. Um, you teased it last week in the podcast um, and published on uh, Monday, or actually over the weekend, the speed bump. Um, sorry, I'm not allowed to call it a speed bump. Am I? No, what's it's, it called? It's, the Urex thing. It's, it's a latency differentiation mechanism, Colin. Yeah, right. The speed bump. Yeah. Um, both, so, both me and us are completely different from a speed bump. Okay. And right. I'm not, I'm not going to insult the intelligence of our listeners by explaining because I think it's pretty obvious what the difference is. So let's just accept <laughs> that it's a latency differentiation mechanism, and just we can move on from there. Righto. How's it different then to the ICE one that was previously announced? Because the the level of uproar over the out the ICE announcement is radically different to the level of uproar over the Eurex one. Is it just the case that one's European and one's American? Yeah. So honestly, in terms of of actual functionality, um, there is very very little. So basically, no difference between the two. I mean, there's yeah. Um, 
yeah, in terms of, of how it actually functions, in terms of actually the whole times and stuff like that, it is a tiny bit different, but it's it's exactly the same. Now that this mechanism, which is called uh, passive liquidity protection (PLP), um, came into effect for all FX products on May 27th, um, so that was uh, Monday, and then it's coming into effect for uh, certain German and French equity options on June 3rd. Um, a key difference, though, is on the FX side, the FX products were already subject to a kind of a similar, um, maybe less sophisticated delay mechanism. So that the, on the FX side, they're actually just replacing a hardware-based solution with a software-based solution. They won't really have like okay. a big impact on how the market functions. But on the equity option side, it is a completely new mechanism. Um, now, part of the reason why I think there was a different level of, of uproar, there's a few reasons for this. So one, um, my conversations with a lot of people on the regarding the ice um, and speed bump latency thing, um, they kind of said, "Oh, you know, we had a we had a call with ice, and we were told it was just going to be, you know, a pilot for these products." And then when they filed with the CFTC um, and the regulators, the language used was such that they would be able to implement it to any product. Um, at the yeah. time of their choosing, if they want to. Let's face it, so if, it, if it works, then of course they would. Right. Um, but I think I think people felt that maybe that they were, that this was kind of a bit of a ploy and they were basically trying to get people's backing by saying one thing and then bringing in something that they were going to then try and use to, to kind of compete on this latency mechanism and attract um, other business away. But I also feel like just from conversations I've had with people, I think the Eurex one was done just a bit more widely in consultation or, or partnership with various market participants. I think everybody felt okay. like they, they had a bit more of a say in there. Um, yep. And I think, I think that maybe they're a bit more transparent about the process. I mean, so we in the piece that we wrote, I spoke to uh, Jonas Ullmann, who's head of market functionality at, at Eurex. Um, and, you know, he was at pains to emphasize throughout that this was kind of a very uh, data-driven Process right. They didn't just, uh, you know, in terms of the, the hold times or the delay times on the, the trades coming in. These numbers weren't just kind of plucked out of thin air. Um, you know, they they've done a lot yeah. of data and they've shown this data. You know, they 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 shared all the data they had with market participants to have a look at to agree uh, the times. And I think they even um, I'm trying to remember the details now. On on one of the uh, I think it was actually on the FX products. It was originally going to be a shorter delay mechanism but then they got um but then they got convinced you know talking to market participants to actually make the delay slightly longer so i, I think that i think people yeah. felt that rather than these just being kind of thrust upon them slightly with with a slightly more cursory um discussion yeah. about it people felt like they were kind of more involved in the process of it um and then it was just i think it's slightly less uh, a slightly less opaque mechanism. I think Eurex were very clear about we're only nothing's really changing much for FX and for the equity options. This is very much um, an experiment. It's just a pilot in these two. Obviously, if it's successful, we'll look at where else it's applicable. Um, but yeah. you know, they even say right now they see limited um, applications for it. But you know they didn't rule out anything in the future. I think that honestly, it's it's the approach. I think more than the mechanism that's different, and that's yeah. why it's causing the uproar. I mean, don't get me wrong. Yeah, I mean, people, I, people still don't like. Most people still don't like this on principle, um, but but no. that's why I think less people are, are annoyed at, at this one. 
You see, I mean, it's probably something we can get into in a deeper argument at some stage in the future, um, future blogger. But um, during the icing, the thing that struck me, and I think I put this in my column on Monday, the commissioner, Brian Quintend of the CFTC, talking about the ice one, and this is direct quoted, the goal of financial markets is not to protect or shelter the less informed. That, to me, is quite punchy. Because I would have thought that most end users of financial markets, the hedges, are by association less informed. And most regulation that I've come across over the past couple of years may have failed to do it, but it has had the intention of protecting you know, the, the weaker market participants. Um, yeah, I, also, I feel, like, I feel like if I was uh, a retail broker, the next time CFTC comes complaining to me because my clients lose or lose money, well, most of them, yeah. I feel like I'd just quote that back at them and be like, it's not the job of financial markets to protect the uninformed. <laughs> exactly. And this is why I find, yeah, this is, I, I think, I mean, A, I think it is. And I think this is why these markets are looking at the speed bumps, because I think somewhere they're getting told by important people, whether it's a regulator or whether it's a, um, it's a big customer um, or even a, a potentially big LP, they're getting told by somebody that, you know, this is a good idea. Because if they were getting a uniform, no, we don't want this. You know, given that every everybody we talk to is at pains to say how they listen to their clients, why would they be doing it? So there, there must be people out there saying it. Um, I guess, yeah, to me, the, the, the cynic in me, funny enough, goes on about, you know, both IS and the Eurex are talking about how this is not aimed at any particular market participants. Uh, yeah, I'm calling bullshit on that one. <laughs> it's totally aimed at anybody who's involved in the latency game. And I have to say, just to reiterate what I wrote on Monday, I think the, I, we, we do need to get to a situation where fast enough is good enough. So maybe not so much speed bumps, but maybe latency floors. You know, why are people trying to build higher microwave towers? I, you know, I, there's an edge there, but is this actually adding to market quality? Speed bumps, if you, narrow, if you sort of, you know, flatten the playing field could, and I have to stress the word could, improve market quality. Um, whether it will in allow, you know, we, we could get the other situation whereby, okay, so you're protecting passive liquidity providers, but because they've got this advantage of the speed bump, you might find you get a lot more cancel and replace orders, so your liquidity could become a little bit more fragile. Um, I guess what they're trying to protect is the guy saying, look, I need to buy this 100 lots, no matter what and I'm going to bid there for 100 lots, what I'm getting annoyed at is people jumping in front of me and I'm not getting, and I'm not getting them. So if, if it protects the real hedges, then to me it can only be a good thing. Yeah, and I, th- I think, I mean, I'm still of the opinion when, from the last uh, article I wrote on this, which is you know, on the balance of probability, look, try it out on these products. Like, neither of them are particularly, yeah. uh, the ice one's pretty illiquid. The, the Eurex one, I think, is trades a bit more because they were trying to find a product. They were like, if we, you know, if we do it on something that's kind of a liquid, it's not a big enough sample size to really teach us much. Uh, but similarly, we're not going to introduce a new mechanism for and disrupt our biggest contracts. So they kind of found the middle yeah. ground. But on, on the balance of probability, if all these people are, are decrying how awful it's going to be. You know, try it out on some fairly, you know, illiquid, uh, you know, not kind of borderline illiquid contracts. If it improves liquidity in those markets, then all to the good. And if it if they're if these critics are right, 
and it, it turns out to be awful, well, guess what? They can just scrap it yeah. and go back to the way it was. I mean, to end on a positive note, I think it will be a success because I think there are some pretty major market-making firms out there that are looking for this sort of protection. Um, and some of them are quite tech-savvy, um, and they've been, you know, quite noisy in, in sort of promoting the fact that, you know, um, if you take someone like XTX, they like liquidity, they like the speed bump idea. Um, you know, they come out of that, you know, high frequency, really tech savvy space. Um, but firms like that, you know, people that are firms that have transitioned to what you could call real liquidity providers, and if that doesn't bring the wrath of everyone on my head, I don't know what will. Um, but, exactly. But people that are actually sort of looking to generate real liquidity have been pushed. And so this is what I think is the, the background to this. There are f- some important firms out there that have been pushing this. And I suspect what they'll do is they'll turn around to the um, yeah, the exchanges, in, in, the, in this case, ICE and Eurex, and they will pump liquidity in there and they will make them more liquid contracts. Now, whether people actually hit it is another matter, but I think it will be a success in terms of attracting more um, more liquidity to the thing. So on that positive note, um, we will finish always up there. Always, always cheerful to them, mate. Just think, yeah, we've given film reviews, cricket references. I mean, yeah, what, what does this audience want? And I'm sure we'll get them playing the emails again. Hopefully. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) thanks for listening, everybody. We will be back next week as planned. Have a good week. In the meantime, this podcast will be available on the iTunes store um, sometime in the next 24 hours, uh, which means Saturday morning European time. Thanks for listening.